Hey everyone, this is Vanessa, the Badger side of the Bull and the Badger podcast, and uh, I just want to let y'all know that we're going to sound like we recorded this upcoming podcast in an airport hangar far, far away, but in reality we were on another planet, and thus the sound might be a little iffy on this one. Um, We did record it from Pluto, which is no longer a planet, so just bear with us on this one. Thanks. Masterful. Hi, and welcome to The Bull and the Badger podcast. Uh, I'm Vanessa the Badger. And I'm April the Bull. Um, and we're just here today to actually talk about food. But food. 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 Yeah. Food. We, I'm a fan. What about you, April? I'm a fan. Okay. Well, I, I, I think the, the reason we're even talking about it uh, is because it's something that I'm actually talking about a lot um i'm eating and i'm talking about food people are like hey vanessa do you know a place to go get and i'm like yes whatever it is yes um i often call uh my family the original yelp um just because there was something really uh funny about the way that we did vacations and the way that we just interact and i think it has to do with kind of my cultural background but then my family takes it like a step further and is you know uh, tuned into all things delicious. Um, I mean, I always remember, um, I mean, it comes with like this dark side where we, we try to go out to eat sometimes my immediate family. And oftentimes if it's just all right, like everybody knows, like everybody's like looking at each other awkwardly and, you know, we're like, well, that was mediocre. And, you know, it's not enough for something to be like, well, that was pretty good. Like, oh, I could put it into my mouth and, like, savor that, but it could have been better, you know? So I I took them to um, this one place called Zip Fusion. I was like, all right, it's my birthday dinner. It's going to be great. Like, all these reviews. And then as soon as, like, like, we started eating, and it was like, it's just all right. That's the thing about families and fusion. Just do not bring your parents to a fusion restaurant. Because it's twice as much as they want to pay, and it's not the food that they want to eat. And they're just pissed. Like, the few times I've taken my parents to a fusion restaurant, like, I learned fast. I learned fast that it was the wrong move to make. We went to a Sushi Roku, and I think it was, like, a somebody's graduation meal. And you could just see the disdain in my parents' eyes. Like, I mean, they wanted to be happy because we're celebrating a happy occasion, but... But it was not a happy experience, you could tell. And uh, when your parents aren't happy, the food just doesn't taste good. Do you agree? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's funny because, like, I've definitely also not had... I mean, the food's fine at Sushi Roku, but it's not like, oh, well, this is not authentic, you know? And they have, like, judgments about that. But then, um, you know what? We've actually had, like like completely fine experiences at places like rock sugar and pf chang where like as long as you're not calling it like asian food or like ethnic like it's supposed like ethnic background then you're fine you're like completely fine but um yeah i I don't know like 
I, I think one of the cool things about food and like just to just to mention this po- podcast is centered kind of around um, you know it started because April and I were working on my documentary The Laundromat right and um, one thing that my DP noticed that I didn't even realize I was doing was every time I would go and interview someone for my documentary I usually would bring food or we'd share a meal before or after. Um, and I, that might have actually, you might have actually been the exception, huh? Because we came yeah, so late I didn't at get night. Anything. I, I might have brought snacks. <laughs> the accusing stare, if you could only see it over, over I, the, I didn't way, get anything. the podcast way. Put that on the record. Uh, so everybody else got food. Uh, well, I, I think that, that food is so important to our culture, especially. I mean, food is important to every culture, but especially to Asian culture in that people can't talk about their feelings and have a reason to be around each other. Food is a really nice way to express love and togetherness. It's just to gather around the table and have a meal. And, um, you know, if you don't have the words, you have your your stomachs. <laughs> That's true. I, I totally I totally agree with that like just one more um one more story like I was at like a meeting and 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 when you go to a meeting and you're like an Asian person like even though you're not hosting the meeting I feel compelled to bring something do you know what I'm saying like I'm like maybe I should like bring some drinks I should like uh, I don't know uh bring some fruit you know something people to snack on and and I feel like hopefully the host doesn't think I'm imposing but I just feel like compelled to bring food so one time we all had this meeting and everybody brought separate like tangerines that we all like picked up from a bowl and like were eating but what the asians immediately started doing was peeling the tangerines and peeling off pieces to give to other people and then feed themselves and then the one just like in heaven (laughs) but one of the non-asians in the group was like why do barbarian well, she was like, why do people keep handing me slices? And, like, it's not like she was more selfish or something. It was just, like, the dynamic was if you bring a tangerine, you bring a tangerine for yourself. It's like everybody got tangerines, so, therefore, everybody eats their own tangerine. But that's not, you know, like, that's not how she grew up. Because, like, you go to a Chinese restaurant and the Lazy Susan comes to you. And... I've found that, I don't know if it's explicitly or implicitly, but, like, if I serve food for myself first, instead of, like, the person to your left or your right, especially if they're, like, older than you, that's, like, a big no-no. Like, there's so many, like, complicated food rules. Anyway, I just, it was, like, such a funny interaction. Like, you don't, there's so many things, like, that we act upon food that we don't even, like, realize are happening, you know? So, white, white people. Worst quality crab means you have best quality heart. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, was an amazing quote uh, from one of my favorite movies, uh, Joy Luck Club. I, I think it means you're like a card-carrying like Asian American female if you sat through that movie like more than five times. Like, you actually like that's your initiation process, for real. Oh man. Thank you. Thank you for that. And with that, let's introduce our special guest. Our very, very, very first special guest. Her name is Jens Chang. Hello, everybody. Hi, Jens. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pretty well. How are you all doing? Good. What did you think about our our stories? I totally agree. I'm dating a 
Caucasian man. And so you can say white. Okay. He's a white guy. Um, (laughs) And then I've taken him to family dinners at Chinese restaurants and I've had to give him the tips beforehand. Like, okay, in order to impress my parents, you got to pour their tea and then you also need to serve me. And I'm telling him to serve me to make him look considerate, even though I'm the one who thought of it in the first place. But, you know, there are these rules, very strange rules that we need to live by. So, Do your parents appreciate those gestures that he makes? I think so. I, yeah, they seem somewhat impressed with the sharing that he does. But um, if, I didn't, if I didn't coach him through it, I think that he would probably struggle. So you're welcome. <laughs> Thank, thank goodness for understanding those rules. It's funny. I actually saw a BuzzFeed article about it, and I was like, I was like, yep, yep, yep. And then there was like a couple new ones that I learned. Um, I wish I had it in front of me, but I was like, this is my childhood. This is my childhood. <laughs> but um, in terms of uh, talking about food, I guess, like, I think the great thing about food is that one, it's such a huge part of our culture, you know, um, for better, for worse, right? So there's like all these positive and negative things associated around food for Asians. And for the most part, I've had very like positive, you know, like, you know, like even the, uh, the idea that like your health, like the way that your parents look out for you is like, are you eating? Do you know what I'm saying? But then like, like sometimes it also like becomes like a cover for like, more important things like April you were saying that uh you know if if we don't have words we at least have food you know so mm-hmm. do, do you have any examples or do I have any examples of what I, I have an or... example oh let's hear it okay I have an example I don't know for the both of you when you went to college and when you hadn't seen your parents in a couple of weeks when you went back home Instead of asking you, oh, how have you been? It was more of a comment of, oh, you're not eating enough. You look too thin. Or, oh, you put on some weight. (laughs) You look better. So then that was kind of their way to bridge the conversation into something more emotional most of the time. But I thought you were going to ask something else. Like the question my dad always asked when I came home is, what do you eat? Oh. So then I just go through my meals for the last week and I, well, I was at the dining hall and I had this and I had that. And it's funny because I find myself asking people that question now because I'm actually curious. I'm like, oh, you went there? What'd you get? You know? (laughs) What do you eat on a day-to-day basis? Like, what's your breakfast like? What's your lunch like? Do you go out? Do you make food for yourself? But you all had, like, fancy dorm food where you went. Yes. UCSD is pretty fancy, I think. I I felt like I ate pretty well. Oh, really? UCSD. Well, well, I wasn't no, in you your college. <laughs> I was in the oh, UCSD. Yeah, no. social science colleges. Okay. So. Yeah, John Beer, what? <laughs> um, well, you know what? When I went home from college, it wasn't, um, you know, are you eating? But like, what do you want to eat right now? Because I think in San Diego... <clears throat> And people might disagree, but I feel like there's a serious lack of delicious Chinese food for the price that we get out here in like Arcadia, San Gabriel Valley, you know, like Monterey Park, Alhambra. And so um, 
you know, like, they'd be like, well, now that you're home, what should we eat? And I was like, well, I get to choose. You know, like, oftentimes, you know, like, we did give it a lot of say in what we were eating growing up. You know, um, I had friends who, like, every day had to eat what their mom made them, which was homemade Chinese food, which is awesome. But, you know, like, we were eating, like, linguine and pizza. <laughs> you know, like, so people would be Chicken like, you eat cold pizza for breakfast? I was like, yeah. Oh, man. And then I didn't realize how weird that was but because that was your normal you know like whatever your the way you're raised is your normal right so um anyway like they would like send us home with like you know like black bean chow fun which was like my favorite or tomato beef chow mein and just like just like boxes of chinese food that we could like have for the rest of the week and actually my friends and i would we'd get together and we'd like have like a fried rice exchange what? Yeah, that's actually how I met. <laughs> that's crazy, Vanessa. <laughs> True story. No, it, it, I should have been your friend back then. Yeah, why would... Hello, we were doing these fried rice exchanges. No, because like... Because she would make fried rice, and then I'd have my fried rice from whatever, like, my I mom gave I think we me. get the idea of what a fried rice exchange No, no, no. It gets... No, it doesn't get better. It's just, it's just exactly what it sounds like. But that's how I met one of my best friends. Like... When we were thinking about it, like, in our first year, like, how did we really bond? It wasn't, like, small group. It wasn't, like, hanging out and watching, like, movies together. It was, like, hey, you small have fried rice? I have fried rice? It's thing for people who don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, uh, a bunch of people of the same faith decide to hang out. Especially if, like, they're, like, the same age and same gender. And then, and then they, like, talk about stuff. In a small group. In in a small group. There you yeah. go. Uh huh. Uh huh. Thank you. you. Got your certification. Just yeah. Get to it. Right to the. Thank floor. you. I, like I try. I try. It's all about translation. Um, and by the way, we haven't even talked about why you're here. You are an expert, and let's let's talk about what you do. Yeah. Can you introduce yourself? We kind of just jumped right into your story. I'm oh sorry. no worries. Uh well, where do I begin? I. You were born in. I was. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I'm from the San life. Gabriel Valley. Uh-huh. Went to. UCSD for undergrad, and then uh, I did graduate school at UC Santa Barbara, and I studied clinical psychology, and now I'm teaching. So um, I have a love of mental health, a love of food, and a love of cats. So not in that specific order, actually. So cats might be first. I don't know. Maybe. No, that's fine. You have to decide now. (laughs) But honesty is always the best policy here. Yeah. In case she's listening. Nutmeg, I love you. Perfect. Okay, so how did you become interested in mental health? What drove you to that that profession? Well, it was kind of a roundabout way, but uh, actually in high school, Vanessa can attest to this, I was not a very good student. I was more about extracurricular activities and whatnot. So when I went to college, I didn't really know what to major in. And I was like, philosophy or psychology, they kind of sound like the same thing, but I'll give <laughs> psychology a shot and see what it's like. And I actually like the classes. I like learning about the brain and behavior. And um, so that's how I got into the major. And then I applied for grad school just because I heard that in order to really pursue it, you need to have a graduate degree. And I don't think my parents were expecting me at all to pursue a graduate degree because out of the three sisters, I was kind of the underachiever, more artsy one. So um, oh, I, can, I think both Vanessa and I can relate to that. What art? Art is for losers. <laughs> so then I ended up um, 
proving them wrong and I went to graduate school but it was it was kind of out of the wrong intention that I went so by the time I actually got into the really hard stuff I had to reevaluate why I was there and kind of reignited my passion for serving others through mental health and uh yeah, that's kind of how I, I got into it. But then now I'm much more into how different ways you can help yourself um, through well-being versus what can go wrong. Right. What's an example of that? Uh, so exercise, you know, being able to do 30 minutes a day of cardio is pretty effective, almost as effective of, as uh, 30 milligrams of Prozac a day if you have mild depressive symptoms, FYI, but um, always... Are you quoting a study? I am quoting my previous supervisor, but always check with your consulted <laughs> physician <laughs> before ascribing to any method. Yeah, of... and that's like the worst. That's what people don't want to hear. Like when you're depressed, like I don't want to get out of bed right. and exercise. Like mm-hmm. that's the last thing I want to do. But I do have to say it's night and day like I hadn't exercised for a long time I go on these like spurts so I'll like exercise like crazy for you know six months and then I'll just stop for you know six more months or something like that um but recently I started running you know about like I mean it's not like real running it's like if you just saw me you'd be like that woman is walking very jauntily (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> she seems to be very out of breath for that kind of activity. But, you know, I do run and I try to keep it to like 40 minutes to an hour. And it's night and day. Like if I skip, let's say, two or three days in a row, I, I feel like crap. Like Yeah, you get that high after you exercise. So yeah. I relate. What's another thing that people might do? I think um, finding a way to not think about yourself. Because I think, at least for me, I like to throw pity parties for myself and be Debbie Downer. So when we're so focused on ourselves, we, you know, we get that tunnel vision of how stinky our lives can be. But when you actually focus on other people, taking care of other people, taking care of your cats, making food, bringing snacks, things like that, um, it gives you perspective. And it also helps you, you know, not only think about your issues, but ways that you are effective in helping other people. So I think that's a, that's a good tip in and of itself. That's really cool, actually. I, I never thought about that's that. That's what you are doing, Vanessa. You are serving others. Ah, well, like, yeah, obviously, like, I have... With your fried rice exchanges? Is that what we're talking about? (laughs) How many lives have you saved with your fried rice exchanges? Well, you know what? Actually, the other thing that I used to do um, back then was have a small group specifically where, like, we would talk about current events, but it was all centered around me cooking a meal for everybody. And, like, (laughs) because I'm so crazy, like, like, I would have these, like, elaborate meal plans of course, like, so say, say, say Bible study started at 7.30. I was, like, cooking up until 8.30. And everybody had already arrived, and we were all we all just pitched in, and we cooked together, we sat down, and that was actually probably the best part of that small group. Not just the, the idea of, like, um, like, talking about, like, events and, like, our faith and things like that, but also, like, the idea of eating together, that was what was so cool and healing and and community about that group but like you know like it's interesting that you say like t- 
to not focus on yourself. And, you know, like, I think I, I get that way, too. Like, I just start spiraling, and I'm like, oh, you know, self-pity and things like that. And, and it's hard to even, like, identify when that stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that, that idea of, like, okay, well, what, like, opening up your vision almost to, like, include other people in into your view of self. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe not just, like, oh, like, well, this is the way this person feels about me, but, like, what is... What's going on with this person? For example. Um I think like I, I and I think we do this maybe subconsciously, but like when you help someone through a problem, there's there's gratification mm-hmm. and even just talking to them about it. Like like knowing that helping them unload, which is what Jens is talking about, like the documentary, the laundromat documentary, like me sitting down with them was also a healing experience, not just because they got to talk about their problems, but for me to uh, 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 enable them to speak about their issues or to have conversations with their parents, like that was also healing for me, which that's crazy. I didn't carry a healing. Oh. You're like a little... Little flea, just like getting nourishment. <laughs> hey, but that sounds parasitical, right? It was very symbiote. I was like that fish next to that shark that's like eating the par- like. You're the, like the bird on the top of the barnacle on the whale, right? Yeah, the bird on top of the uh, hippo. Yeah, oh, yeah. Is the hippo Asian American problems? Like <laughs> hashtag Asian American mental health? Is that what it is? No. Okay. I had to. I had to ask. I think that's that's a. Those are two really, really awesome tips, and they sound so simple, but, you know, it takes a lot when you're in a state um, of sadness, of depression, of self-pitying. It takes a lot to get yourself out of your rut and to get yourself out of your head and to just, you know, put your energy out rather than turn it inward. Totally. I agree. And it is so much easier just to pull out your phone and play Candy Crush or whatever. And you tell yourself, oh, okay, this is going to make me feel better. Ironically, it doesn't. And then you think that spending so much energy is going to make you feel worse. But then ironically, when you do, when you spend energy on other people, you feel better. So it's kind of like you have to do Jedi mind tricks with yourself before you actually commit to, you know, doing something different. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to sort of self-medication, um, I have so many forms of self-medication and one of them is sadly my phone. And I think it's kind of become a worldwide phenomenon Mm. of where people, you know, don't ever have to be alone with their feelings because they can just zone out with their phone. Um, And I think that's sort of a thing, whereas, you know, some people use these sort of recreations to just legitimately relax. Like after a long day, like why not relax and play a favorite game or something like that? Mm-hmm. But when it's when you are literally zoning out and just trying to escape your life and not have to think about anything, um, that's when it becomes self-medication. And to bring it back to food, food is a huge self-medicating thing that we do. Hence the word comfort food. Comfort food. Mm-hmm. I'm all about comfort food. Word. Can we can we <laughs> tell them about our fast? Is that sure? Go ahead. So uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, April and I said no more fast food, like cold turkey. No more fast food. Um, so no going through drive-throughs. Um, well, that was it for me. Like that was my standard. Like if I had a, if I had to, if I couldn't get on my car to a. a obtain this food that it was fast food like i could go to like 
I don't know, Samosa House down the street or, or something like that and, and go get, um, like, and pick up, like, Indian food or something like that. But I couldn't be at a McDonald's or Jack in the Box or Carl's Jr. Okay, any place that, that I Because, like, through. I had this habit of, um, like, I would just work long days and then right after that I would have to go into school and, like, either work on my movie or just mm-hmm. do d- different things where it's, like... You're exhausted. You're emotionally exhausted. You're like physically exhausted, and you didn't have time to cook. So like, I would go and get, you know, like, and it and it became a reward system too, and and um, you know, I think I think it's true that you can like become, um, even if if it's not necessarily proven whether or not you get addicted to these foods, but you get to addicted to like a pattern of, you know, getting that kind of thing for comfort. So like. When I quit it, like, it was great because I had to tell myself no. Because when you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't. Hearing I shouldn't versus no. Mm -hmm. That was, like, a completely different, like, mind switch for me. So I could actually say no to the food. I was like, you're not allowed. Do something else. Like, do something else about it, you know? And so, obviously, there was, like, some effort involved. But then... If you're, you know, making more effort on the front end than on the back end, you know, you're not hurting yourself with too much of the bad stuff, you know? Because obviously, like, you know, I, I think it's fine, like, once in a while, but it had become a habit. Like, it had become a pattern. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. You're so good at your job. Just oh, my gosh. Just sitting there patiently <laughs> listening to Vanessa. Or... So. Playing mind games in my head as I stare. <laughs> oh. At this oh, good, good, good. I mean, good. I'm I'm paying attention. Yeah, yeah, done. Oh. Obviously, of course, you're Asian American. Um, do you ever come across these, this topic with um, in your diversity class? I know that you're teaching right now. I I definitely think you know. I think especially with Asians, the the link between food, your body, and your mood is pretty significant. I can't attest to other cultures because I'm not of other cultures, but it's just so interesting to think about. For Asians, we tend not to feel very much, but we um, feel a lot in our stomachs. So Asian people, we have some GI issues. We have, (laughs) true, (laughs) not to self-disclose, but you know, that's where all of our feelings churn. And then the way that we comfort ourselves is by eating or sharing food or giving to other people. Um, But if you look at the terminology behind your emotions, like I can't stomach this feeling. Um, I... I'm, I'm at, I'm at my full kind of limit or, um, it left, it left a bad taste in my mouth. You know, you really think, oh, wow, it's not just about food. It could be about emotional stuff too. And I think that if you notice within Asian households, if the meal is different, if the behavior around the dinner table is different, then probably something's wrong, you know? That's interesting. I've never heard it put like that. Yes. Have you ever experienced that? Well, you're... <laughs> huh? <laughs> no. No? Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> just well, always was... wonderful meals at the Wonderful meals around the house. I mean, like, I definitely noticed a change. Like, you know, like, I always thought, you know, like, I was so proud to, like, 
be one of those households like that wasn't allowed to watch TV mm. around dinner. But then we started doing that, and that's where I noticed a change. But I can't. I don't think I've ever identified what that change was in terms of our family dynamics. But um, in is it like something that happens very often, so that um, instead of expressing pe- feelings, people are like more like expressing discomfort, like physically. Um, I think for research suggests that uh, for Asian Americans, the somatic bodily concerns tend to be more prevalent. Um, and a lot of Asians get referred to mental health through their general practitioner or physicians because they'll go in and then they'll get some med test done and then nothing significant. And then it actually turns out to be something emotional. Um, so it's easier to seek a doctor for, you know, a quick fix versus having to work on your mental health. But yeah, I was, uh, in this anxiety and depression class, um, that was offered through my healthcare system Mm -hmm. and there was older man he was not asian but he was like an immigrant and we broke up into like pairs and just we're you know talking about why we were there and he was just like i don't know why i'm here i just can't sleep but my doctor told me to come here Mm -hmm. and he's like i don't know why i'm here and he was so very like adamant about not having anything wrong with his mental state or even acknowledging that that's like an important part of mental health um that I was like oh okay yeah that's what my parents would look like if they had to go to one of these things like totally. just not like you know accepting it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well um in in terms of like identification like that helps you know Asian Americans kind of get a sense of well, okay, so I'm not sleeping well, or like I've had stomach problems recently, but nothing's actually physically wrong with me. Like, how do therapists or doctors, how have they been treating that kind of stuff? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, just to attest from my own experience, so I can't say for all therapists out there, but um, really trying to join with the client just to see what they think is going on. So I wouldn't be like, hey, you know what? your headaches are actually because you're depressed, but I would probably just try to say, you know, what's going on? Oh, okay. Huh. When did this start? Try to kind of take the back back door entryway and then try to draw some linkages for the client and then maybe tentatively suggest, I'm wondering if this has to do with whatever stressors going on in your life, but it really is about the relationship and how much they trust you. Because if they don't trust you, they're just going to be like, no, it has nothing to do with that and give me back my money. So you really have to develop that relationship with, with any client, but especially with the Asian American ones. We don't like to give money over for no reason. you know. <laughs> so. True. Well, in general too, like, do you, do you prescribe something different for, uh, for the client? Like say, say okay so you're not sleeping well um try try some exercise plus this and then you know do you know what i'm saying like a different combination of things versus like going straight to talk therapy or like med medicine okay for sure because i think um with Asians, the, the research has suggested that we like advice or we like a little bit more directives versus uh, other cultures that really like just to have that blank slate sounding board talk therapy. So it's um, it's actually within uh, your better interest to recommend something to do for Asian American clients. And then the more Asian, the more 
enculturated they are to their traditional culture, the more you want to really like be respectful to the elders and offer suggestions and be more structured. So I think if I were to see an Asian client who who really was more tied into the traditional aspect and more um, focused on their bodily issues of you know what's going on, I have on the, uh, these unexplained aches and pains, then uh, I would be more directive with them and maybe do some sleep hygiene or have them you know try sleep to get hygiene? yeah, yeah I, I what's also, sleep hygiene are you both sleeping well sleep hygiene oh it's, it's, does it have to do with quality of sleep yes it does it does it, it doesn't have to do with how dirty we are no no bed. <laughs> did we scrub behind our ears yeah properly? you use uh no it's it's about um how you set a routine before you go to sleep so do you all go to sleep at the same time? Not you two, but I mean, just in general. Like <laughs> Vanessa wait, texts wait. me in. <laughs> she sings me a lullaby. <laughs> then, then I drive back home. I, <laughs> I then stay up all night, not sleeping. No, actually, that's interesting that you mentioned that because like, I don't have regular patterns of sleep. And I'm wondering oh. how that affects... You're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, like, how is that connected to mental health, like, sleeping regularly? I, I, like, I think there's a lot of jobs, specifically in my industry, like the film industry, where, you know, it doesn't, you know, like, sometimes we have to flip our schedules, you know, there's a lot of people who have to work at night or work through the night for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and I'm wondering how that affects your health in the long run. I, I know you're not, like, a physician. <laughs> no, I, but I was I, not smart enough to go. Um, well, I mean, I think kids have it right. You know, even the, even the newborns, like, how do you feel when you don't get your nap or when you don't sleep well enough, you feel like you're going to, you know, pull your hair out and cry and stuff like that. But really sleep is kind of a resetting of your body and helps your brain consolidate memories from the day. And it helps to, you know, just in general decompress for the day. So if you don't get enough sleep or if you keep changing it, then you're kind of confusing your body. Like, hey, it's time to be awake, but then yesterday I was sleeping at this time and your body's just going to get thrown out of whack in a way. So, Vanessa, sleep at a consistent time as you can. All my roommates would tell you they've been telling me this for years now, but yeah, we'll we'll see. One day, one day I'll I'll get to that place where I'm actually sleeping on the schedule. I can send you text messages every day. I got an email from Vanessa. I checked it this morning and I was like, huh, I wonder when that came in. It was 4 a.m., Wow, what time did you wake up this morning? Well, I guess, you know, a few hours ago (laughs) was that you you emailed me. When did you wake up this morning, Vanessa? Or this afternoon? Oh, yeah, yeah, last night was probably not, yeah, I didn't. Okay, let's move on. if you would just continue talking more about how Asian American clients are different from other others and the sort of like you know considerations you have to take into account do you, do you see mostly Asian American clients or and I think you wrote your thesis on that I, I wrote my dissertation on Asian Americans and psychological testing which is slightly different from therapy but okay. um, that makes sense 
but yeah, there are things to attune to for Asian Americans. I think like one of the things is that's really prevalent these days is the idea of intergenerational conflict. Like what do you do if you were born in the States and your parents were born outside of the States? And what do you do when you see your parents, you know, showing affection for each other by cooking each other meals and giving each other like a pat on the back versus other families that, you know, embrace and kiss each other and, you know, they just seem so much more physically affectionate. So, and I think for our generation of those who are born here, we're kind of stuck in the middle. So, um, I, I, that's kind of my preference in terms of working with therapy clients, but I'm open to anybody, any shape, any form. Well, how does that, I mean, when you were studying this and it's obviously a very relatable subject for you, um, how did it make you reflect on your own experiences? Yeah, I was just thinking, I think when I was growing up in my family, it didn't seem unusual, you know, cause that was the norm and I was kind of sheltered and my parents were pretty cool. And, you know, you live in Arcadia, you don't really have much to complain about. And then when you go to grad school and you start learning about, you know, intergenerational conflict and family problems and mental health stuff, that's kind of when the insight all comes together and you realize, oh, those things that I thought were normal might not be that normal in comparison. So that's kind of what triggered my interest in it because my parents were able to thrive based off of their own interactions with each other, which if you look at it from maybe a more Western perspective, you would find it to be unusual, kind of not as productive, not as individualistic, not as achievement oriented. But then for my parents, they somehow have managed to get along with each other through their very indirect way of communicating. So like, what's an example of that? Oh yeah, no. Um, so, you know, if my dad were to be mad, this is more back in the day now, he's very Zen and calm, but like back in the day, you could tell that he was mad, not by what he was saying, but just by how much he wasn't saying and how hard he put those chopsticks down at the table and how hard he pushed away his chair from the table. And so it was all nonverbal, whereas, and you know, they were both able to just kind of take a breath and cool down. But in other families, you'd be like, oh no, let's sit down and talk about it. And you know, yes, let's work through our issues as a child. Like, I think I just took it as normal until I started going to other places and then started my own relationships. I'm like, oh man, other people don't act that way. I have to actually talk about things. Oh, yeah. So you sort of, obviously, of course, you probably adopted those same I did. communication patterns mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. had to sort of learn that that's not the only way. Not the goes. only way. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. <laughs> What do you mean? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I totally get it. Like, I think, I think the, you know, like, you you learn to read a room better. Like, mm-hmm. when there's so much nonverbal communication going on, like, you could tell when things were tense. And if, if anything had to be explicitly stated, it meant you were dumb. Like, you didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And you had to learn really quickly, I think. Like, I think I pushed the boundaries a lot because I was willing to, like, like wait what's going on here you know Mm -hmm. and then people would either explain around the issue or just be like we'll talk about it later and then you have private conversations about it Mm -hmm. but it was very much like if something was not spoken it was not supposed to be in existence or out you know out in the public and so I always found that really fascinating because like 
I feel like part of the reason we never learned Chinese was so that our our parents <laughs> and our grandparents like could speak to one another in like Cantonese or Toisan or whatever and have all the kids not be aware of like the actual conversation going on. Ooh, oh yeah. Conspiracy theory. Well, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. Like You think your parents would say that? Like if you ask them like let's call them up right now. Yeah, let's yeah. call them. Put them on the phone. No, no, no. I've already put them on the spot a lot. But I, I mean, like, it's not something that, you know, like, like they first, first your family has to choose not to, not to talk about certain things, right? Or if something needs to be said, and they don't think the kids are ready to hear it, they had to make the then decision to like just speak in Chinese. And they weren't like, let's not teach them Chinese. It was just like they don't know Chinese because. You know, for whatever reason, we all spoke in English. You know, like, I'm third generation, fourth generation, however you want to count that. And so, by that time, most most of us all spe- spoke fluent Eng- English, you know? And the code language was actually Chinese. Whereas, like, uh, for other people, it's different, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, there's a lot of uh, people out there who, you know, like, their parents only speak the traditional language, you know, of, like, their ancestry or whatever. And... You know, English is actually the code language where they don't understand it. You know, like there's a lot of kids who end up being translators or having to grow up a little faster. Mm-hmm. You know, because of that. But for us, it was opposite. <laughs> you know, like it was, for us, it was just like Chinese was the code language, and we didn't understand it. So that was the language of secrets to me. My sister and I <laughs> created a language of secrets. We called it Hong Kongese, even though it's not <laughs> it's not Cantonese, but pretty much any letter. That is not a vowel, gets an ong after it, and you spell out a word, but any vowel, you just say it. So Vanessa would be vong a nong e song song a. And then, but of course, it was pretty easy to pick up. So after a while, my parents are like, we know what you're saying. <laughs> we thought we were brilliant. Like, uh. That's amazing. Can you say more things? Uh, sure. Um, well, and then you can combine the vowels together. So if you wanted to say toilet, you could say tong oi longi tong. St- <laughs> okay, now we're just going to make you talk like that. <laughs> can you please say a long sentence? Oh my gosh. No, no. See, and then that's the thing too, because if you said a really long sentence, like after a while you just forget. Yeah, so just it had to be a short it, sentence. Tong <laughs> thong. Um, no, tong hong I song. And then, see, you can't differentiate between, like, different... Like, you can't say space. So you really have to, like, break it down in That's your okay. mind. That's okay. Just do it, and then we'll see if Vanessa and I can guess. No, I'm d- I'm, I've given up already. You've given up? Well, I, I think it would be cool to hear it, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to guess. Tong Hong I Song I Song A Long O Nong Gong Song E Nong Tong E Nong Kong E <laughs> Something about this is a long sentence. Yes. You wow. Know. Wait. Congratulations. Wait, you do that though, right? No. Really? I was just. You totally said you weren't gonna get it. And you got it, Vanessa. I was just staring in glee. I I this was it was a Jedi mind trick because mm-hmm. I was like she doesn't know what to say, and this is starting to sound like this is. Ah. So she's probably stating. So you can use this code language with your friends. Just say two sentences before people catch on because people catch on pretty easily. So 
you're welcome again. Not, oh my not gosh. Not me. That's like the anti-April language. We should definitely talk about April in this language right now. Okay. Do it. And go. No, no, no. I want to hear. I, I, I need some I practice first. I don't understand it either. So you can say whatever you want. I was actually going to ask you too, did you have any favorite dishes growing up that your parents made um, that was unique to your family that brings back certain memories for you? And you have to say it in the Hong Kongese. <laughs> I can't even say it like what it's actually called, much less translate it into Hong Kongese. Um, like cultural dishes or just any dishes? Any dish. Like, for example, my mom would always make spaghetti, but it was like Asian spaghetti. <gasps> Asian spaghetti is straight up the best did in the you, world. Did, did your parents make Asian well, spaghetti? Well, my mom makes regular what is spaghetti. This? I it's like, explain. it's, um, well, it was a uh, ragu or other brand. Prego. I, I'm, I'm not sponsoring <laughs> any sort. Um, but spaghetti sauce, right? And then you put baby back ribs in it that are uncooked and you cook it really, really slowly. And then you add like, three cups of sugar yeah. in the sauce so it's kind of like a barbecue sauce that you eat over spaghetti and it brings back so many memories because it's you know your mom's spaghetti but then of course it's a hard world when you go and you order spaghetti at a restaurant oh. and it tastes all sour and stuff you're like this is not spaghetti yeah. <laughs> flip your plate Asian yeah spaghetti is, is the best spaghetti in the world mm-hmm. um I, I can't think you can you okay think of i uh Two dishes. One is my mom's clam linguine, and I, for some reason, I've had my mind on clam linguine a lot lately. I don't, don't ask me why. Your family like, is fancy clam linguine. I, d- no, I don't know what, I don't even know where she got the recipe, but like, you put in clam juice and like olive oil and like, and then, cause like, you just get the clam, like the clam cans or whatever, and you just throw everything in. But it's like, I think, uh, it's tied to like a specific memory where they. Ever, all of my friends had gotten sweet 16 parties and mm-hmm. like I didn't which I was like whatever whatever oh. no I honestly was I didn't care like so you had everybody a clam like people party. were like I didn't care okay I just <laughs> it like wasn't that important to no me, okay? but like what happened was like everybody was like one upping each other so around because my 17th hey, birthday I had a sweet 16 party Awkward conversation <laughs> all right so, so 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 like I like hey it's great like I mean, part of it is, uh, I was going to make, like, I was going to say, maybe part of it's tied to the debut. Just kidding. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I just went there. So, so, <laughs> you're going to slap me later, aren't you? You have um, never made so many, like, <laughs> cultural assumptions until we started this podcast. It's I'm like, sure, yeah, Vanessa, that's totally what my parents were thinking. <laughs> um... Anyways, you didn't. You were sad because you didn't have your thing. No, but but then they surprised me on my seventeenth birthday because like I guess like they were just like oh yeah let's just do this thing, and like they made this huge pot of clam linguine and because they knew it was my favorite. And then the second thing that I can think of is uh, my mom's um, short rib or oxtail um, stew. Oh man. Yeah, she she would. Because the actual process of cooking oxtail, right, it, like, takes forever. And But what she would do is, just, like, leave it running. And that was a dish she could make while she was working because she just doesn't have the time and, and the physical, physical energy anymore to, like, always cook for us and things like that. Because when we were older, she started working full time. So she would make 
Um, when she knew we were coming home from, from, from school on like a weekend at, from San Diego back to LA, she would, she would start the oxtail on like Friday night and then for the rest of the day on Saturday and Sunday, finish up the stew. And then it's just like, you realize how much effort goes into stuff like that as an adult and you just... That's love right there. Yeah, right? So one, one of the dishes that my mom makes that I, I, um, that bring back a lot of sort of sense memories is Aras Caldo. Which is, uh, I'm totally saying it stupid way too, I'm sure. Filipino people out there are like, ugh. But, um, you know, it's the Filipino rice porridge. Ugh. So it's rice porridge with chicken, and then the garnishes are um, green onions, toasted uh, garlic, and lemon juice. And I might be forgetting one other thing. But that sounds so good. It's really good. And it's always what my mom makes when somebody's sick. See, so you're like smiling right now. Yeah. Tapping into the happiness. Yeah. Happiness zone. So are we going to have a fried rice exchange? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're going to have to sign off now, but that's because we're compelled to start our fried rice exchange like right now. Um, we can't wait. But, and, and if you want to make friends out there, you should probably definitely start with a fried rice exchange. F-R-E, fried rice exchange. <laughs> we should get t-shirts. come up with your own secret language <laughs> while you're at it. And make sure it sounds Fong like... Fong E. <laughs> or Frong E. There you go. All of that sounds really delicious. Well, gents, thank you. I want to congratulate you on uh, making it through as one of our first guests on Ooh, The Bull and the Badger. Thank you for having me. We'd love to have you back. Oh, I would be happy to. You can wax poetic about nutmeg. Oh, yes. That'll be to be continued. Can you say something about nutmeg in your language? Oh. <laughs> uh, I can't get enough of it. Nong yu tong mong yi gong I song tong hong yi kwang yi yi nong o fang tong hong yi yu nong I vong yi rong song yi. I lost her like five syllables ago, but I think it was like nutmeg is the cutest. Close. April, did you get that? No. <laughs> she, she's way too delighted to even like process what's happening right now. I just right let now. the syllables wash over me. Nutmeg is queen of the universe. Oh, it was a Q. Okay, yeah, that's what threw me. I'm sorry. It's all right. We'll keep practicing next time. All right. All right. I might just have to be a translator. I can't be like an actual speaker but thank you thank you again gents you gotta practice all right see you later bye bye you broke the podcast April. I know. I do with it. Your, I with do your it at evil least thoughts. three times every podcast. <laughs>